welcome. If you are new with us, my name's Tim. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us. Whether you're here in person on this beautiful but a little bit of a blustery morning, or you're joining us online, it's great to be with you. Uh, so I grew up Southern Baptist, went to a bunch of like little Southern Baptist churches, kind of a lot of them in the South, uh, some up here in the Northeast, and there was like a staple of our church experience. And that was every summer, we did something called Vacation Bible School. Now, you may or may not be familiar with that, but basically it's just this great opportunity for parents to get free babysitting. So they drop their kids off at these, this week of Bible School, and, and the Bible School was about kids learning the Bible and playing lots of games and having fun. It was great. But one of the things that we did is every night we'd have this opening ceremony. And in this ceremony, we would do three things at the beginning. We would pledge allegiance to the flag, to the Christian flag, and to the Bible. Now, it, you know, if that sounds a little weird to you, yes, there is a Christian flag. If you're interested, I could tell you more about what that pledge is like. There's also, well, of course, there's a Bible, but you maybe never heard of anybody pledging to it. But yes, we would do a pledge allegiance to the Bible. But it, all, it would always start with a pledge allegiance to the American flag. Now, now it's interesting, the, the order of that, that, that we would first pledge allegiance to our country and then to our faith. Now, I don't know that that order was intentional, but, but it definitely left an impression on me that the very first thing we would do is pledge our allegiance to our nation first before our faith. This combination of like patriotism and religious devotion is, is kind of part of America. This is kind of part of what we do. It's been around as long as we've been a country, and it's not exclusively American. Lots of different places do that. They kind of bring together these, these ideas of, of faith and, and politics or patriotism, and, and they merge them. And while this isn't in any way new, it's been on full display recently. I, you're probably aware that in the last couple of weeks, we've had both the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention. And this kind of infusing of faith and politics has been a very uh, apparent theme, very, very upfront theme for both conventions. And you think about the Democratic National Convention and uh, the, the nominee at the end gave a, a, a speech about why we ought to vote for him. And in it, he claimed that if we vote for him, he will help restore America so that it's a light to the world. Now that phrase, a light to the world, is right from the mouth of Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus uses that phrase to refer to the church. And in John, Jesus uses that phrase to refer to himself as the light of the world. A very exclusive phrase used by Jesus, but being adopted into this political framework. In the Republican National Convention, same kind of thing. Uh, the vice president, during his speech, took a passage from Hebrews chapter 12 that talks about how we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And he uses this passage and he pulls out Jesus and instead inserts old glory, this, this phrase that refers to the flag as the thing that we fix our eyes on. In both cases, this kind of infusion of faith and politics in this way that kind of invites us to believe that God is on one side or the other. And that if we want to be on God's side, we need to align ourselves with one of these parties. Of course, uh, 
religious folks had to jump into the fray too because it's not just politicians that get these things kind of mixed together. Um, so there was this kind of famous, at least in my world, this famous megachurch pastor from California who's been in the news a lot. And he gave an interview this past week. And in it, he talked about a conversation that he had uh, with our president. And he said to the president, and I quote, Mr. President, any real true believer is going to be on your side in this election. Any real true believer is going to be on your side in this election. Later in the week, I came across an article um, on Time Magazine's uh, website that was written by two pastors. And the title of this article was, The Election is a Test of Faith. And at the end of the article, these, these pastors ask us to, when we go to the polls, ask the question, what would Jesus do? And the answer that's clear from their article that they expect us to discover when we ask the question, what would Jesus do, is that Jesus would vote for the Democratic candidate. Clearly. From both sides of the aisle, we get this weird, maybe not weird at all, right? This, this kind of infusion of politics and faith inviting us to imagine that God is taking sides and kind of challenging us to align ourselves with the side that God is on. That question, whose side is God on, keeps coming up again and again. And we're given kind of different, different uh, options, but the same message. And I actually think this is really dangerous for us as a church. It's really dangerous because it risks us misplacing our hope, rooting our hope in something that is fleeting, impermanent, that is not the answer that we seek. We are jumping right into the middle of this uh, with our series we're calling Primary, that we're starting off this week. You know, as we come off the tail end of this primary season, this is sure to be, it already has been, a very contentious time. Lots of finger-pointing and name-calling and sizing one another up and choosing sides. And we're asking the question, well, what does it look like for followers of Christ to engage this season well? How do we follow the way of Jesus well in the midst of all of this? And many of us, I think, make the mistake, especially during times like this, of identifying ourselves primarily by our, our political ideology over and against our faith. That the thing we most kind of align ourselves with at this moment is not what does it mean to be someone who is living out the way of Jesus at this moment, but what does my side think about this at any given time? And I think this can come from a good place. Um, you know, we want to see change and, and politics... Uh, the working, engaging in the political system is a way in which we can see that happen. But I think as we do this, unfortunately, we, we actually, in trying to grasp this kind of political power, even though it might be efficient, it might be effective in the short term, in the long term, it's actually a, it's a surrendering of the real power that we have at our disposal the power that God is offering by his spirit as we learn what it means to be people who are living in the way of Jesus together. Now this isn't, again, this, this isn't 
new to us. It's not new to America, uh, or it's not even unique to America. This is this kind of infusion of politics and religion. It's been around for a long, long time. In fact, the early followers of Jesus, they had to deal with this as well. Um, early on in the book of Acts, Acts is this kind of history book of the early church that we come to after the Gospels in the New Testament. We get these Jesus followers running up against this kind of mix of politics and religion and having to try to, to sort through what power they're ultimately going to put their hope in. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, these two uh, close followers of Jesus who are leading the early church, uh, they heal someone who's been lame since birth. They heal this man, and it's, of course, this, it's a miracle, and people are in awe of it, and so all these people gather around, and they start telling them about Jesus, telling them that Jesus is Lord, and, and lots of people come to faith. But it creates some challenges. So we're going to pick up here in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to read about the aftermath of this healing. We get this in verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the leading priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees came over to them. They were very disturbed that Peter and John were claiming on the authority of Jesus that there was a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, jailed them until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so that the number of believers totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Leaders and elders of our nation, are we being questioned because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed in the name and power of Jesus Christ from Nazareth, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, The stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name in all of heaven for people to call on to save them. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men who had no special training. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. So immediately after this miracle, Peter and John get pulled into this kind of weird infusion of faith and politics. You have these, these religious leaders who are kind of being propped up and supported by the political uh, kind of forces of the day. King Herod, who is the Jewish king, who himself is propped up and supported by the Roman Empire. And the whole idea here is to kind of keep things under control. Not that these people don't actually care about these, these priests. They actually do care about people knowing God, but they also recognize that it's really important to make sure we don't ruffle feathers politically, because if we do, Rome might come down hard on us, and so we kind of have to keep the peace on both ends. We have to kind of make sure we're doing well by, the, by the, the politicians, the kings of the day, and we have to make sure we're caring for the people and, and shepherding them well. So there's this tension here, and so it brings it together. And so they see these people who are preaching in the name of Jesus, this person who was crucified on a Roman cross, and they're preaching the resurrection, which is an affront to Roman power. And there's the train. We've got that in the background. The timing is always suspect. We never quite know how this is going to go. It's definitely going to go again, but I'm going to keep going. Um, so you have this, um, the, these people who are calling in Peter and John who are trying to figure out... <laughs> 
the question they're asking is, whose power and by what authority are you doing this? Right? It's a It's a question of authority. It's a question of power. And they're feeling kind of threatened here because what we read in Acts is that about 5,000 men come to faith because of this, this miracle. And that's not including women and children. So if we're counting women and children, what, maybe, maybe 10,000? So we have this number, this like 10,000 people, 8,000, 8, 10,000, whatever. It's a large number of people. And um, New Testament scholar Craig Keener says that Jerusalem at this time was probably only, at, ma at maximum, it was only 85,000 people. Probably a little less than that, but maximum it was 85,000 people. So out of that number, you see 10,000 people who convert to this new kind of religious sect that's just growing up, that they're, that's based on this man who was crucified as a criminal on a Roman cross, but now their claiming has been resurrected. I mean, this is threatening. And so they're coming in, and it's a question of power. They're saying, where does your authority come from? What power are you using? And this is, this is often the question that happens in politics, right? Like, who has the power? Where does the power come from? I mean, isn't that kind of what we're... You know, the question that's being asked of us now is, who do you want to hold the reins? Who do you want to be in power? Who do you trust to make those decisions? And that's the question that they're asking Peter and John. So, what power are you utilizing? And they know, they know this game. They know that they can choose to appease the religious leaders and kind of play into that power structure and protect their own skin, and create some kind of safety for this kind of growing new movement, or they can lean into the authority of Jesus. This question of power was ever-present. I mean, in fact, if you go back, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, the very first, one of the very first things that we hear about Jesus before he starts his ministry is that he, in the desert, encounters Satan, the tempter. And the, there's three temptations that he is given. And the third one is this temptation to bow to Satan and suddenly have authority over all the kingdoms of the world. Satan says, if you just bow to me, I'll give you authority over all kingdoms, all power. And if you think about that, that's a much more efficient way to become the, you know, to kind of get your, your stuff done to have power over all the kingdoms. Jesus was being invited into a more efficient system, but he knew that that was not the way that God was going to bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He knew that God's way was going to lead him inefficiently through the cross, through what looked like actually the ultimate weakness. God would show himself to be strong. And so Peter, who had kind of been on the journey with Jesus, rejected this, this invitation to, to wield power in some other way or to appeal to some other power. And he says, This man was healed by the powerful name of Jesus, the Nazarene. The man you crucified. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. 
Peter and John trusted in a power that wasn't obvious. It wasn't the obvious way to go to, to leverage um, to leverage the systems kind of in front of them to, to best benefit themselves. They trusted in the authority of Jesus who didn't come to coerce but to give himself in humble love. That the, the way in which God was going to work in and through Jesus was completely opposite from how the political and religious powers were conspiring together. It wasn't through grasping at power, but through surrendering it. Not through coercion, but through humble, humble love. And they knew, I mean, he referenced Jesus as the crucified one, right? They, know, they knew this wasn't necessarily the most efficient. It wasn't necessarily the one that on its face looked the, like the smartest choice. I mean, if you're going to go for a winner, the, the crucified one might not be the first one that pops to mind. But they understood that while it might not be the most efficient, it was the way that led to resurrection. It was the way that God was at work to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so they chose to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Jesus as the authority. Jesus as the one in whom they trusted his way that they would choose, not the way of Herod or the way of the, the priestly leaders, but Jesus. Him and his way of humble love was the way that they chose. And that is the invitation for us even in this moment. As followers of Jesus, the question is not, who are you going to vote for? But who is Lord? Will you choose the way of, of power, of coercion, or the way of humble love? As Bruxy Cavey, pastor and author, says, If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. Politics are not. Power is not. Economics are not. Religion is not. Fame is not. Fashion is not. Appearance is not. Food is not. Fitness is not. Friends are not. And family is not. What way will we choose in this moment? Now, this certainly does not mean that there aren't really important questions being asked in the political realm or that you shouldn't be engaged in that. Certainly not. But if your expectation is that all we need to do is get the right person in office and this will all be okay, then your hope is misplaced. If your attention is entirely on politics, and how that is shaping everything right now, then your focus is misplaced. If your energy is entirely going into getting power by ensuring the people that you're rooting for end up with the political weight, then your passions are misplaced. It's not that these things aren't important. They're just not primary. They're not, this is not how God is choosing to make all things new. It's not how God is redeeming the world. That comes through Christ and by his spirit through us as we live out the way of Jesus, the way of humble love.
So how do, how, how do we kind of live in this moment through that lens? So two things I would suggest as we bring this to a close, and the first is simply that we stop asking the question, whose side is God on, and start asking the question, am I on God's side? Like, God is not aligning himself with a political party. God is doing God's work in the world and inviting all of us, regardless of how you might identify politically, or if you don't at all, to join God in what he is doing in the world. God doesn't have a side. And then, secondly, to understand what God's side is or what God is up to, we have to be more rooted in our understanding of the message and the teachings of Jesus than we are in any political party or platform or ideology. If I am better able to articulate what my party believes than I am about what, as a follower of Jesus, what that means for me as I live my life with my neighbor, with my family, with my co-workers, if I am better able to articulate a party platform than the gospel, then I've gotten things backwards as a follower of Jesus. Again, this does not mean that I don't care about political things or even engage with those things. But I do so through the lens of someone who is being shaped by Jesus, primarily. And from that standpoint, I make decisions. And so, how can we do this? Simply, one, one suggestion I would make is that you and I spend more time this week and in the weeks to come for the rest of our lives, but particularly as we move towards November, that we spend more time in the Gospels than we do in our newsfeed. That we spend more time sitting at the feet of Jesus than we do sitting in front of our television. That we are being shaped primarily by the person, the teachings, the way of Jesus than we are by whatever political pundits or, um, what, again, whatever ideological kind of perspective we take in. And, and if I could narrow it down even more than that, I mean, you know, the New Testament's big, right? There's a lot of books there. We need to be shaped by Jesus' revelation of God in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Matthew 5 through 7, this kind of, this longest teaching of Jesus. It's a formative tool for us as we're leaning into what does it mean to be Christians engaged in this season. We need to understand what's happening out there. We need to be knowledgeable. We need, to, we need to engage with our whole minds. But we have to be shaped by the Spirit of Jesus and the, one, the way in which he reveals God to us. This is our primary calling. And this isn't exactly new. For some of you, this may sound kind of like, well, of course. But it is the kind of thing that we need to come back to again and again, and particularly in seasons like this where we are being so pulled in different directions and told that, well, real, if you're really a Christian, then you will vote this way or that. And we need to remember that <clears throat> our primary allegiance is not to a party and, and not even to a nation. It's primarily to the one who reveals God to us through the act of humble love on a cross. And shows that while it's not the most efficient, 
It is the path to resurrection. This is our primary focus. This is our primary allegiance, even during this time. So I hope you'll continue to follow us in the coming weeks. We're going to unpack this a little bit more. Um, In the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some different angles on what it means to be people whose primary focus is on living in the way of Jesus in this moment. So would you pray with me, and then we'll um, move into a final worship song. Father, we, um, we do want to be people who declare that Jesus is Lord, that our primary dependence, that our primary allegiance is to you. And we want to be people who are shaped in the way of humble, self-giving love that's revealed by Christ on the cross. Lord, would you help us as we navigate this challenging moment and the very real issues that we're dealing with politically, really important issues. Would you help us to learn how to be rooted, to be focused on you and your way so that as we engage those important issues, we do so from our commitment to you through a lens that understands that you are like Jesus. And so the decisions that we make flow from that place. Would you be at work in us by your spirit in changing us and shaping us to be more like our Lord, to be people who, when others look at us, they can tell, like Peter and John, that we've been with you. And we pray this in the name of the humble one, our Lord Jesus. Amen.